New beginnings are often very exciting. A new form of leadership that is in line with the current culture seems to be generally an advancement in most organizations and companies. After all, many in our culture assume that good leaders adapt with a modern progress and adapt to their style, adapt their style and their approach to fit the cultural norms. And there is some truth in that. Uh, when existing leaders can't keep up with the moder modern needs and approaches, uh, people describe them as the old guard. They get this label not necessarily because they are old in age, but often because they represent uh, that which has been the old way of doing things. And uh, our culture seems to assume that new is always better. Have you noticed that? We assume that a transition from the old guard to the new guard must always be a step forward. But is it always so? Is every new thing better than the old? We assume that what is old becomes expired or out of date with a contemporary experience. Uh, friends, as a society, we seem to be worshiping what is new. And often we don't consider carefully what we might be losing by moving away from that which has been passed on to us and has been a part of the established way. Now, I'm not saying that every old thing is good and needs to stay on, but we as a society have a tendency to just automatically assume there's an instinct in us. If it's new, it must be good. Well, today, the passage we are looking at in the book of 1 Samuel presents a transition from the old guard to the new guard. It's a passing of the baton from the prophet Samuel to the king that God established, Saul. Uh, what starts off like a great celebration and a, and a great new beginning is tempered by some unfinished business that God's prophet brings up to the people of God. This unfinished business is not aimed to ruin people's rejoicing, but to place them on a stronger footing on, and on a better footing for their future. Let's open God's Word to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 12. If you have God's Word, I invite you to open to, to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 12. As you open there, uh, if you are visiting our congregation, we, we're currently working through the book of 1 Samuel and taking either one chapter at a time or a significant portion of, the, of this book at a time to consider what God wants to teach His people through the history of how He has dealt with them. Let's consider God's word, 1 Samuel chapter 12. I'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 25, the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. 
I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord, concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubal and Barak and Yephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from the Lord, from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside 
after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, but I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts. Would you join me in prayer and asking God to bless the preaching of his word and our hearts as we listen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for your word that is able to bring life to those who are dead in sin, that is able to encourage those who are discouraged, that is able to awaken those who are distracted by the lure of sin. Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts in a way that Christ would be exalted, in a way that we would be humbled, in a way that we would be drawn near to you. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Passing the baton. I wonder if you've noticed as we have been going through the journey of, of 1 Samuel, that the transition to the first king, from Samuel to the first king, Saul, has taken about five or six chapters from chapter 8 to chapter 12. Uh, this move from the judgeship, from deliverer judges to the first king of Israel, has taken a significant part of this book. The rising of Israel's first king means that Samuel's role as a deliverer, as a deliverer judge, comes to an end. Now the king will be the, the leader of the nation, entrusted to lead them into battle. And in doing so, he will be on par with how the nations have their kings. Who would have an issue with having a king like the nations, God would have an issue. Samuel would have an issue. The passing of the baton of leadership from the last judge Samuel to the first human king starts in a context of celebration, of rejoicing. But the rejoicing is tempered by some unfinished business. Yet unpleasant as the unfinished business is, this text offers a deep foundation for a truly better future and closes with pointing the right path forward now that the people of Israel have a king. As we look at this passage, at the, at the story of the passing of the baton, uh, there's going to be three major parts to this text, to this event here in our passage. We're going to see the prophet's integrity. We're going to see the people's guilt. We're going to see the right path forward. The prophet's integrity, the people's guilt, and the right path forward. Samuel begins his speech by presenting the king that the people have requested. He's now passing the baton to him in his presence. The passing of the baton, however, is an appropriate time for Samuel to publicly reflect on his past ministry. 
So in verse 3, Saul, Saul, I'm sorry, Samuel asks the people to testify against him in the presence of the Lord and of their new king. Samuel asks them five questions. I wonder if you've seen them, if you noticed them. All these five questions relate to how Samuel carried out his leadership among the people. These questions have to deal with whether or not Samuel has defrauded the people or taken anything from them or dealt corruptly with them in any way. Notice what he asks them. Look at the questions in, in verse 3. Here I am, Samuel says, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. Interesting way to, to reflect on Samuel's past ministry. He closes off as a judge and wants to see if there's any lack of integrity or any accusation that the people might have against him that has not been dealt with. Are there any standing accusations that the people can bring against Samuel that he has not resolved in their interpersonal relationship? He wants to resolve whatever has been broken or done poorly. One of the signs of godly leadership, dear friends, is, is a willingness to be held accountable and to live one's life to be above reproach. And when a leader has committed wrong against the people, to seek to repair that wrong and restore that relationship. It is a sign of humility and it is a sign of integrity when spiritual leaders are willing to be held accountable even by the very people they have been called to lead and serve. Samuel's integrity is reflected in how he has used his authority. All the questions that he asks um, are, are hovering around a main idea, and that idea is, has he used his authority to take advantage of the people for his own means and for their oppression? Why are these particular questions selected? There could be a number of other questions Samuel could have asked. Well, if, if we remember the warnings that Samuel has given the people of Israel early in chapter 8, when the people asked for the first time to get a king, Samuel warned them that a king will take things from them. And in the warnings given to the king or about the king, in chapter 8, one of the common words, one of the common principles that was in the warning for the king is that he will take things from you. He will take things from you. He will take things from you. And when you and your king will be in conflict to each other and you will call upon the Lord, the Lord will not listen to you. Here Samuel says, listen, I want you to reflect on my ministry for the past 30 some years. Have I taken anything from you? Have I oppressed you in any way? Samuel shows us that his leadership as a judge of God's people has been a leadership characterized by integrity in how he has dealt with God's people. Friends, if you are in a position of leadership, 
whether that's in the workplace or in society in, in any way, be cautious of the temptation to use people for your advantage and intentionally or unintentionally oppress them by dealing unfairly with them. Samuel begins his speech here by the humility of considering and asking to be held accountable by the people whom he has led. We see here Samuel's integrity. But despite Samuel's integrity, the passing of the baton to Israel's first king has a dark shadow. And this dark shadow becomes evident in the next major part of this passage. In verses 6 through 18, Samuel brings out the people's guilt. The people's guilt. In the second section, Samuel appeals to the Lord again as a witness. This time is for the sake of pleading with the people concerning their guilt. But in order to build up his case, to show them their guilt, Samuel starts with reminding the people about God's righteous deeds. It's a way of saying, let me remind you of God's rightness in all his works. And in light of that, Samuel will show how the people's request for a king has turned out to be a very sinful act. In verses 6 through 11, Samuel emphasizes God's righteous dealing with his people. Look at verse 7. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. And Samuel starts recounting the history of, of God's people, starting with the exodus from Egypt. What did the people in, of, of Israel uh, need to do when their enemies oppressed them? What did they do when they were in Egypt? They needed to cry to the Lord, and that's what they did. They cried to the Lord. And what did the Lord do? He raised up a deliverer, Moses, helped by Aaron. And through them, the Lord brought them into the land of Canaan. And then when the people of Israel uh, reached the promised land, they forgot the Lord. And the Lord let his people be disciplined by their enemies. And when the Israelites repented of their sin and turned to the Lord, what did they do? They cried out to the Lord for deliverance. And what did the Lord do? The Lord rescued them. He raised judges through whom the Lord would deliver his people. Now, what's the point of recounting these stories? Here's the point that Samuel is driving home from this lesson of history. In each of their oppressions in the past, it was the Lord who saved his people. Yes, the Lord raised judges who used, whom he used as a means to rescue his people, but the Lord always looked to the, the people always looked to the Lord for the deliverance, not to the people whom the Lord raised as means. And the Lord brought deliverance from their enemies and caused them to live in safety. This has been the story of Israel for the past few centuries. 
But when a new threat emerged, when a contemporary threat emerged, the people failed to seek the Lord as they have in the past. Look at verse 12. Uh, Samuel says, And when you saw that Nahash, the king of, Ammon, of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. Remember the story of Nahash in chapter 11? We looked at it last week, actually. Uh, from this verse, it appears that the threat of Nahash has been brewing up even before the battle of chapter 11. The threat of Nahash has been uh, brewing up throughout Israel, and it caused the elders to come to Samuel in chapter 8 to request the king. Uh, friends, this is an example of how important it is for us to read the Bible in its context, to read every verse in its context. Not just the immediate context of the previous verses before or after the passage we're reading, but even the context of a whole book. Now here, a few chapters later, we get an important clue that was not given to us in chapter 8. When the elders came to Samuel to ask for a king, they just brought against him the accusation that he's old and that his sons are not walking in his ways, which was true. What they did not reveal is that actually they were afraid of the threat that this Ammonite king was brewing against Israel. And their hearts began latching. Instead on the Lord for deliverance, they began latching to the way the nations handle battles. And how, five chapters later, their heart posture is finally exposed. It was not exposed in chapter 8. It was, it's exposed here. In chapter 12, this is the wrong turn the elders have taken when a new threat emerged. Instead of crying out to the Lord for deliverance, as they should have learned from their history, they chose instead to develop their own plans for security and demanded them from the Lord. Their confidence and trust have shifted away from the Lord. Friends, are there any areas of your life where you are tempted to do the same? Have you considered that the challenges that come our way may be God's way of giving us a test to examine where our reliance is built upon? Are you ever tempted to do what the Israelites have done, to come to God, not to seek Him for direction and help, but to bring your demands and to bring your mind already made up to the Lord and just ask the Lord for the stamp of approval on your plans? Have you ever done that? It's a common instinct for every one of us. What was worse in their situation is that in asking for a king who would lead them into battle, the elders have asked, in essence, for a God substitute. Because God was their king who had fought for them. And in their history, God has proven his record. This temptation for a God substitute is with us even today. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. 
prone to leave the God I love. Oh, friends, I wonder how, how you are doing in, in considering our own instincts to prefer to fill the spot that God wants to have in our lives with other things or people or circumstances. If you consider that the very fact that we put a day aside during the week to worship God corporately is a sign by which we show that God is our king and that we live differently than the values of our world around us, that we're not trying to fill our weekend only with recreational activities or with leisure or with sporting events, although they have started already, um, as you well know, or with more work or simply with more sleep, but we prioritize worshiping our king in the company of his redeemed people. Whether you're able to come in person or watch online, we declare to the world we, we actually don't want to be like the world, even in the way we use our, our weekend. We want to prioritize God. We would not want to substitute God with something else in our lives. I wonder in what ways you are tempted to choose a God substitute for you in your life. Uh, if you want to strike a conversation with me sometime this week, I encourage you to come and tap me on the shoulder and tell me what are the things that the Lord is, is tapping you on the shoulder for when it comes to identifying those tendencies for finding a God substitute in your life. Even though the people have turned away from their divine king, the Lord answered their request. The Lord gave them a king. It was God's plan from the beginning of the Bible that God's people should have a king. That they, God's people should have kings. But the Israelites asked for a king at the wrong time and with wrong motivations. Nevertheless, the Lord set a king over them. And to our big surprise, the Lord does not execute his judgment against his people at this time. Quite the opposite. As we saw last week, the Lord uses this new king, King Saul, to bring deliverance, uh, to kill and to overcome the threat of King Nahash, the Ammonite king. But it was clear last chapter that it was the Lord who worked the salvation not the king that they have selected for themselves. So God did not bring judgment against the people at this time and this experience. This is God's mercy. Instead, Samuel first assures the people that if they continue to follow the Lord, they will be well. This is God's mercy in this moment in the history of Israel to postpone the judgment. God's judgment, however, is not entirely taken off the radar. Listen to the warning that Samuel gives in verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, assuming moving forward, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. This means that how the people follow the Lord will affect both them and their king. This also means that it's not the king who will determine if it will be well for them. It's an important lesson, dear friends. It's not the king who will determine whether it will be well for them. It's whether or not, moving forward, they will continue to follow the Lord or not. 
following the Lord is more important than the fact that they now have a king. Samuel wants the people to realize, before they focus on the future, before they focus on on what's ahead, Samuel wants them to realize the great evil that they have done in asking for a king. And the way Samuel will show this is by praying to the Lord to thunder and rain against the people on that day. It was not the season for rain. It was harvest time. In Israel, the harvest time was the driest season of the year. Naturally, there would be no rain. But Samuel shows that God can disrupt the natural expectations of nature to show his people how serious was their sin. So Samuel prays. And we're told in verse 18 that the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. Why thunder? Why was that a sign? To show the people how wicked was their sin. I wonder if you remember through our story of 1 Samuel, if thunders appeared ever before in this book. They have. As a matter of fact, they appear not only in the passage that Colin read earlier for us, they appear way earlier than that in chapter 2 in Hannah's prayer. Do you remember Hannah's prayer? Hannah's prayer is like a, a theological summary, a biblical summary of the entire book of 1 Samuel. And here's one of the utterances that Hannah prayed in her prayer. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. God would use thunder against his enemies, Hannah prayed. And sure enough, at the beginning of Samuel's ministry in chapter 7, when Samuel led the Israelites to turn away from their idols and turn wholeheartedly to the Lord, the Philistines attacked them in the middle of their worship service. But the Lord fought against the Philistines. And remember how he did it? Listen again, 1 Samuel 7.10. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. In this book, the Lord thunders against his enemies. And here we are in chapter 12. On the day when the Israelites celebrate their new king and rejoice over him, the Lord thunders again. And he thunders this time against his people to show his people how close they came to identify themselves with the Lord's enemies when they asked for a king to be like the nations. When they asked to be like the nations in having a king like the nations. The Lord says, you have identified yourselves with my enemies. And now I'm thundering to show you my displeasure in what you have done. The sign of thunder and rain was aimed to drill home for God's people the depth of their sin. Friends, most people have a tendency not to see their sin. 
part of the deception, uh, deceptive nature of sin is that it blinds us to, so, to know and see our own sin. We live life thinking that we're fine, that we have done nothing wrong. Or if we know we have done something wrong, we often tend to minimize it. But an important part of a right relationship with God is to have a biblical view of our sin. And when the Lord convicts us of our sin, it's so that we would turn to Him, not away from Him. And this is what the Israelites do when they realize the depth of their sin. The third part of this passage is the right path forward. We have looked at Samuel's integrity. We have looked at the people's guilt. But this story, this passage, closes on a clear picture of what is the right path forward. The right path forward involves five things, as this passage will show us. The first element of the right path forward is repentance. Notice how the Israelites respond in verse 19, and all the people said to, those, to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. Finally, ever since chapter 8, the people now get to the place where they call and, and identify their request for a king. They call it evil. It has taken several chapters in the story to get to this point. This is a good point to get to. It is an important point. They identify that what they have done has been evil. Not only that, they also identify another part that's important in, in this step of repentance. They also realize that their sin deserves death. They come to acknowledge that the death sentence is what they deserve for their sin. The death threat they were now facing is not coming from the Ammonite king Nahash, but from the Lord, because they have sinned against him. This is one of the marks of understanding sin correctly and biblically. The Apostle Paul says, for the wages of sin is death. The people say, pray for your servant that we may not die. The people not only come to realize the consequences of their sin, but what they do after that is critical. With their consciences now grieved over their sin, with their minds now being biblically informed of the consequence of sin, they now turn to the Lord and ask for deliverance. Friends, this is the right path forward. The path of repentance calls out sin for what it is. The path of repentance um, involves a recognition of the consequences of sin. And the, the path, path of repentance turns to the Lord to ask of the Lord for mercy and deliverance. Oh, friends, I wonder if you have ever done that you're not a Christian, the message that we as Christians proclaim is that the God of heaven has made the heavens and the earth. He made all this universe perfect. He owns it all, and therefore we will give account to him. But we have rebelled against God. 
we have turned our way against him and our way of life right now is to do things as it pleases us to do what is right in our own eyes because of our sin we rightly deserve god's punishment and death and hell but god in his mercy sent jesus christ to be the substitute to take upon himself the penalty that our sins deserved he died on a cross was buried but on the third day god rose him from the dead proving that christ overcame death paid for our penalties of sin and would now grant forgiveness of sin to anyone who would repent and trust in christ friends if you're not a believer whether you grew up in church all your life as a young kid or teenager or you are new to christianity or you're new to understanding who god is i want to ask you have you turned to the lord after you have come to the knowledge of your sin if you have come to understand the consequences of your sin have you turned to the lord if you have not done so i want to encourage you don't wait till tomorrow do it today i'd love for you to to come and talk to me or any of the members of this congregation turn to the lord if you are a believer and the traps of sin have lured you and you fall into various forms of sin do you acknowledge the consequences of your sin do you call out your sin as evil recognize what sin deserves and do you turn to the lord to deliver you from that sin the path forward the right path forward involves repentance but there's a another element to the to the path forward not only repentance the second element is calming of our fears the right path forward involves calming our fears notice how samuel addressed them after they expressed their request for repentance samuel starts off by calling them not to be afraid look at verse 20 samuel said to the people do not be afraid wow what an assuring word the exposure of their sin caused them to be fearful for their lives but now that they became fearful for their lives and have repented after the the call for repentance now comes this word of assurance do not be afraid oh friends Samuel assures them that the Lord is not going to kill them. They have they have feared for their sin. They have feared for the consequences of their sin in ways they haven't done before. But now that they have, the next step is be assured of the Lord's mercy. Do not be afraid. I love the lyrics of the song Amazing Grace that captures so well this tension that grace first makes us fearful of the consequences of our sin and then delivers us from that fear listen to the the words of the of the of the hymn it was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved how precious did that grace appear the hour i first believed Friends, the message of God's salvation not only exposes our sin and challenges us to be afraid of the consequences of our sin, but it also assures us that when we repent and turn to the Lord, the Lord is gracious to receive us. What a balm that is for our troubled souls. This balance between exposing sin and giving assurance of of forgiveness uh, shows up again in verse twenty. 
Samuel says, you have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do you see how Samuel does not stop merely at exposing the sin, but also at showing them the positive path forward? The path calls us to turn in the opposite direction from their sin, and that is to turn and serve the Lord with one's entire heart. When we are confronted with our sin, we might be tempted to continue to turn away from the Lord, to stay away from the Lord. Sometimes we get this threat in our own minds, I've sinned too much. The Lord will never forgive me for what I have done. This past week, in working with some men in our accountability group, we were talking about how some people, when they are confronted with their sin, actually go for this ditch to think their sin is way too deep to ever be brought out from it ever again. Oh, friends, if that is how you tend to go and fall in, uh, this word is so assuring. Samuel wants to make sure the Israelites don't wallow in their sin and guilt, which would continue to keep them in their sin and away from the Lord. Instead, with the exposure of sin, there's a calling of turning to the Lord and the assurance that if they turn to the Lord, they don't have to be afraid. The third element in the path of, of, of rightly moving forward is a path, it means changing of masters. The right path forward means changing masters. The turning to the Lord involves a positive definition and a negative definition. What does it mean to turn to the Lord? Positively, it means serving the Lord with one's entire heart. Serving the Lord with one's full heart is a big deal. Because Samuel brings it up again in verse 24. It's brought up twice in this passage. And actually, if we, keep, if we go backwards, when Samuel gave his first speech to the people of Israel in, in chapter 7, that is the same thing he called them then. To put away their idols and serve the Lord with all their hearts. It's as if Ma Samuel's message over a few decades has never changed. Preacher, are you going to preach something new to us today? Samuel would say, nope, same thing that I started preaching when I first began preaching to you. That is what I'm telling you today. Continue to serve the Lord with all your heart. Not just externally, not just superficially, not just one day a week. Serve the Lord with all your heart. If you're struggling to serve the Lord with all your heart, Here's some medicine for your soul. Look at verse 24. For consider what great things he has done for you. The reason why and, and the motivation why we can serve the Lord with all our hearts is not so that God can do great things for us. This is so important, dear friends. The reason why we're called to serve the Lord is not so that the Lord will do great things for us. The reason we're called to serve the Lord with all our hearts is in light of what the Lord has done greatly for us. Consider what great things the Lord has done for you. And therefore, serve the Lord with all your heart. This means that our serving of the Lord comes out as an outflow of gratitude, not as a means of getting goodies from the Lord. 
Friends, if you are tempted to, to, to do this, this deal with the Lord, Lord, all right, I'll, I'll do some things for you. Um, but, uh, you know, midterms are coming. Uh, I need some help. Or uh, I'm coming up to the end of my uh, college career, and it's a, it's a crazy time to get a job. Um, Lord, all right, I'll, I'll get more involved in church. I'll, I'll even become a member. Um, Lord, um, I'll do this for you, and uh, we'll see how, how you perform in six months. Oh, friends, that is not the heart with which we're called to serve the Lord with our whole hearts. We're called to serve the Lord in light of what the Lord has already done for us in Christ Jesus. Turning towards the Lord, friends, has this, this amazing motivation that reflects really the, the grace of God in the gospel. Salvation by works says that God will do great things for you if you do stuff for him. Salvation by grace says that God has already done great things for us. And therefore, we now are called to serve him with our whole hearts because he has done great things for us. Friends, I wonder if you live your life as a Christian more by works than by grace. The way you can evaluate that is to see what motivates you to serve the Lord. Turning towards the Lord has also a negative definition. Not turning aside after empty things. Verse 21. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver. For they're empty. Friends, I wonder what are the empty things that lure you and I to follow the Lord instead of... Uh, if that, that lure us to follow the world instead of following the Lord. If the Lord is able to deliver as He has, why would we turn to anything else to fill us or to protect us or to provide for us instead of turning to the Lord. Are you aware of the ways your heart misfires in turning after empty things? Are you aware of the way your heart, your heart misfires in turning after empty things? It'll be different for every one of us. What may be a soft spot for me may not be for you. What is for you may not be for someone else. But consider carefully what are the, the soft spots in which our hearts misfire in turning after empty things. There's a fourth element of the right, right path forward, and that includes words of assurance. Notice Samuel assures God's people. Verse 22, For the Lord will not forsake His people, for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. This is a great assurance in the path of repentance. If we are ever tempted to think the Lord will not receive those who turn to him, here's a great word of assurance. For the Lord will not forsake his people. But notice what is the ground of that assurance. It's not our worthiness. It's not our unworthiness. It's God's great name and His good pleasure to make those who turn to the Lord His people. There's another assurance that Samuel gives. It is the assurance of His continued prayers for God's people and His continued availability to teach and instruct them in God's ways. After assuring them that the Lord is pleased to make them His people, Samuel also says, I also commit to continue to pray for you and to continue to be available to instruct you. Samuel says, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you 
and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. What assuring words. Even if Samuel will no longer be the deliverer, judge of the people, he commits himself to the ministry of the word and prayer. Much like pastors and elders are called to commit in the New Testament to the ministry of caring well for God's people by praying for them and by instructing them in God's word. How gracious of Samuel after he had been rejected by God's people as a judge to continue to commit to pray for them who rejected him and to keep instructing them in God's word. And then there's a final part of, of the right path forward. Not only the assurance that Samuel has given, but the last element that we see in this passage is a word of warning. A word of warning. The right path forward has a soberness uh, because it, there's a word of warning. Look at verse 25. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. The warning is significant in any situation, but it's even more significant in the context of the Israelites at that moment. The threat of being swept away was very recent. If you remember, chapter 11, Nahash has threatened the people of Gilead to uh, be taken away. The people of Israel, ever since chapter 8, have been afraid of being swept away by this Ammonite king. The reason why they asked for a king was because they were trying to deal with a threat of being swept away. It was a rebellious move. Yet God did not, in his mercy, God did not re sweep them away in facing King Nahash. But now he threatens them. There is a warning. And the warning is that if they continue to keep the path of rebellion, they will surely be swept away. And there's a particular emphasis. Both you and your king. In other words, no human king can protect them from the judgment of God. No human solution can protect them from the judgment of God. Actually, the human king will not be able to protect even himself from God's act of sweeping him away if he takes the path of rebellion against the Lord. Sadly, this is exactly how Saul ended up his life. He rebelled against the Lord, and both he and the people of Israel end up being swept away. That's how the book of 1 Samuel ends. The very last chapter is with Saul and the army he led being swept away. God's warning is real. But there's also a great lesson for us to learn from this, learn, this warning. The temptations to, com to continue to live in rebellion are much, a much greater threat to us than any external threat we face. It's not external danger or circumstances that should make us afraid or panic. Rather, the internal danger of continuing to take the path of rebellion against the Lord. Friends, I wonder if you take and see rebellion against the Lord to be a greater threat than an invasion, an invasion from another superpower nation. 
whether you might think of that being China or Russia or some other nation. I wonder if you see the, the threat of rebelling against the Lord and what that brings to be a greater danger for us than receiving a diagnosis of a terminal disease. Then I wonder what are the, the external fears that you face. Take a moment to identify them and consider that greater than those fears is the threat of what may happen to us if we turn away from the Lord. Friends, I pray that we would consider the importance of persevering, that genuine salvation, that a true act of God's grace in our lives involves perseverance. It doesn't matter what, how we start. It's how we progress and how we finish. Perseverance, dear friends, is part of God's act of saving us. Those whom he truly saves will persevere. Those who don't persevere are not saved. Hear the, the message of perseverance and the warning of the threat against falling away, of turning away from the Lord is real. I pray that we would take this to heart as we consider the right path forward. Having a new form of government was an exciting new adventure for the Israelites. But if their joy and excitement causes them to move forward in a superficial way, in a lighthearted way, in a way that just ignores the past, ignores the lessons from the past, and sort of moves on with unfinished business between them and the Lord, if they move that way, their future will be bleak. But if they recognize their guilt before the Lord, and if they turn in a right direction, as we have seen, we and the people of the Lord have a better future and a more grounding and stable foundation to move ahead. This text started with Samuel's integrity. It moved us to see the, the people's guilt, but it closed with the right path forward. And the right path forward involved these five elements, repentance, a calming of our fears, a change of masters, an assurance of God's provisions, and a warning so that we may not turn aside from the Lord. Friends, I wonder of these five elements, which one surprises you the most? Which one encourages you the most? I want to, I want to encourage you that at lunch today, if you're having lunch with someone, talk about these matters and ask the Lord to continue to drill in your heart uh, these elements of what it looks like to move ahead, to move forward, on a solid and sure foundation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word you have given to us. We praise you for the way you have led your people Israel, even when they have wanted to move ahead in a light-hearted, superficial way. You have brought to them a soberness of their unfinished business with you, but you have done it in such a gracious way. You have done it in such an inviting way. You have done it in a way that caused them to turn to you. And you have been gracious to receive them. Father, would you bring gracious to receive us as well? Give us the grace to repent. Give us the grace to, to have confidence that when, you, when, we, when we turn to you, you receive us. Enable us to do that with all our hearts. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray for his glory and honor. Amen.